pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. Walking the edge in a violent city. Dad! Run, Dad, run! A family torn apart. A woman needs to settle the score. If he was pushing drugs to young kids, maybe he deserved it. But Danny was my baby. My son. He was an easygoing man, a nice guy with unfulfilled dreams who's been pushed too far. You'll pick up and deliver. Otherwise, keep your friggin' mouth shut. Is that clear? My friends don't talk to me that way. I think I'm tired of getting pushed around. A man and a woman, two strangers brought together by chance, held together by fate. They were one step ahead of sudden death. Son of a bitch! This is big time bad business, man. I mean, somebody did a goddamn it fry, and you were right in the middle. This is car, Booster. Get in my fucking car! How did you get goddamn a piece of shit like that? We're gonna find that lady and cut her up into tiny little pieces. Jesus, they were trying to kill me! You had to get in the way, you! I'm bleeding! Goddamn! Jack off, Cabby! Where is he? I don't know, ma'am! The bastard's got Tony. God damn you, lady. God damn you for being alive. I'll go with you. Go to hell. Huh? I'm gonna oh, cut your whole fucking head off! Cut your whole fucking head off! You're an asshole. Walking the Edge, the motion picture that takes you to the depths of human emotion. Up here, Brewster. Dirty son of a bitch! I gave you the best shot I could, God damn it! If let, you'd have been out on the street, you'd have been dead by now! I was, going I was thinking about you here. all day long. You could have called I didn't know what I was back. doing. Walking the Edge, starring Robert Forrester and Nancy Kwan. Coming soon to a theater near you. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Ms. Rain Alexander. Hi. Also back in the booth is Mr. Mark Begley. Shut the fuck up. I'm whacking off. <laughs> A classic line. I couldn't, between that one or the McKee's looking to cut your asshole out and send it to the ACLU. Wow. I would have gone with tree frogs agreeing. Or the hugs. The hugs line is oh, a classic. Yeah. The hugs is great. That belongs on a t-shirt, really. We'll, we'll get into that because it's beautiful. We continue a month of requests with one from listener Jordan Nash, the 1985 crime thriller Walking the Edge, written by Kurt Allen and directed by Norman Meisel. The film stars Mrs. Meisel, Nancy Kwan, as Christine Holloway, a woman whose son and husband are slaughtered by Joe Spinell as Bruce Starr, and his gang of goons. 
She's rescued by a cuckolded taxi driver who is in Dutch to the mob, Jason Walk, played by Robert Forster, perhaps the walk of the title. We will be getting into spoilers on this episode, so if you don't want anything ruined, please go ahead and turn off the podcast. We will still be here when you come back after you see this movie. It's easy to find. Fun City put it out just like a year or two ago, so it's it's out there. This is not one of these Czech Timber movies that I was talking about last month. So, Mark, was this a first time watch for you, sir? No, it wasn't. And I know exactly the first time I watched it, thanks to Letterboxd. And that date was September 24th, 2021. So a little over two years ago. And I got it because of the Fun City Editions release. I had been following them for a little while and noticing the interesting titles that they were putting out, a lot of which I knew the actors or maybe even the director, but was unfamiliar with the film. And a few I knew of like Smile and Jeremy and Alphabet City, but there were all these interesting looking titles. I know Sam Deegan brought up her work on I Start Counting, which was one of the ones that I had been eyeballing. And then I fell in love with Rancho Deluxe. I caught it on TV and they were putting out a, a version, you know, a release of it, a Blu-ray release. And I thought, you know what? Gosh darn it, I'm going to buy some Blu-rays, which I hardly ever do because I just don't have the cash for it. And I thought if I'm going to do this, I'm going to get a few so I can get free shipping or whatever. And so it was I Start Counting, Rancho Deluxe. And this one, I think, was the most recent release got the slipcover cases and I think there was a sale was going on. So all this stuff conspired to convince me to get it. And I watched it shortly after I got it and thought it was fantastic. And Rain, how about yourself? Was this the first time you fit viewing? Absolutely. I saw it for the first time two days ago and watched it a couple of times since. And uh, yeah, really, really marinated it in the last couple of days, which is a a funny time to be <laughs> meditating in it with everything else going on in the world. And I was like, I'm, I'm, I'll uh, take a break from all the world destruction to focus on a little revenge flick. <laughs> yeah, this was a first time watch for me as well. And I was really glad to get turned on to this. It's kind of funny because this year I also had the request for Bullet with uh, Mickey Rourke, where he's a washed up baseball player. And here we are with another washed up baseball player. This also has vibes for me of Vice Squad, which I think came out right around the same time. But this whole revenge and it's it's not necessarily one night. I want to say that this takes place over maybe two nights. It definitely takes place over a very quick amount of time because we have to take care of things in a very quick uh, succession here. But yeah, the acting is what really sets this apart for me. I was really glad with these performances, and I love Robert Forrester. I'm mostly familiar with Nancy Kwan from her work on the Pearl Cream commercials back in the late 80s. They used to play those all the time. Hello, I'm Nancy Kwan, and you may recognize me from movies and TV like Flower Drum Song, The World of Susie Wong, and more recently, Noble House. Have you ever wondered why it's so hard to tell how old most Oriental women are? Since ancient times, we've had a beauty secret, just recently introduced to the Western world. Our secret is called Pearl Cream, and it's made from real pearls. Pearl Cream actually made my skin glow like a pearl. I feel I look years younger. I can hardly see my wrinkles anymore. But yeah, this was a lot, a lot of fun for me, and 
am very glad that Jordan picked this out because I probably wouldn't have seen it otherwise. Yeah, same. This is a movie that probably I passed by in the video stores that I worked in and didn't really necessarily give it a second look as, you know, that mid-80s videotape exploitation thing where I probably would have assumed I've seen I've seen this a million times or, you know, it just didn't really grab me. And I'm so glad that I did. Such an interesting character film. Yeah, I think that's what separates it from a lot of the other late 70s, early 80s exploitation films, because this doesn't get exploitation-y all that much. The limitations of the filmmaker, the budget, and all that sort of force them to focus more on the Robert Forrester character, Jason Walk. Now, I have a question. So he's obviously the walk for the title, Walking the Edge. Why didn't they call it Walk on the Edge? Because his last name is Walk. I mean, it's basically the same, or Walk the Edge. The ing in there is throwing me off. Apparently, that wasn't even the title until after the movie was done. I was really glad that that fun city ported over the Anchor Bay commentary with this because that was really interesting to hear from Quan Forster and Meisel all at one time and to get their recollections on it. I think it's in, in one of the commentaries I heard when they're talking about the phrase, take it in the, on the arches, which apparently originates from Taxi Driver. And like the the, the amazing threads that, that lead to this film and then spin outward are... I think situate this in a really, really, really interesting way. Yeah, I was glad for that extra where it's Randy Jurgensen, who I actually spoke to a long time ago when we did an episode on cruising, and he had worked with Spinell, Joe Spinell, a few times, and just hearing his stories about Joe Spinell, just amazing. Joe Spinell shows up in the weirdest places, like the what was it like? The there's a videotape of. Steven Spielberg, I can't remember if it's the <laughs> night of the Oscars when he gets passed over, and I can't remember if it's... Nominations. I think it's nominations Okay, they're listening to or watching on the TV, and he gets he doesn't get nominated. I believe, I've seen the clip you're referring to, and I think it's for the nominations because they're all sitting in a room somewhere, and, yeah, and he's there. <laughs> he's there. Him and Spielberg, and I think it's one other guy hanging out, and I'm just like, what is this? I would love to be a fly on the wall when Joe Spinell and Steven Spielberg are hanging out. Godfather was nominated for the Best Picture and won, but the director, Bob Fosse, a cabaret won. That's bullshit. You cannot have the Best Picture unless the director is also nominated. Who made the picture? Somebody's mother? The director. This man made yours. Are you kidding? Who's kidding who around here? He likes to refer back to Taxi Driver a lot because there are numerous Taxi Driver riffs in Maniac. I mean, he steals a lot of lines from his part and from De Niro's part in that film. So when that Take It on the Arches line pops up, you're like, oh, man, going back to it again. And there's a taxi in this movie. And I like how Mizell was like purposely framing Nancy Kwan in the back seat like she was Betsy from Taxi Driver. I'm like, oh, that's kind of nice. That's kind of nice. Yeah, I liked it also as somebody who often tried to get taxis in Los Angeles in the mid-80s. How like absurd the idea that this man is making a living as a taxi driver in L.A. is. Well, I like that he's taxi driver, but really it's a cover for him being kind of like a racket guy and that he's a collection agent going around and 
trying to get money for his boss, who they keep calling the fat man. And like, I don't think he's that fat. That's a weird, weird nickname. So maybe they wrote that and, and had all that stuff filmed before they actually cast the guy who's the quote unquote fat man. Or maybe he lost a lot of weight. I don't know. Maybe the fat retreat refers to his wallet. Oh, like a P-H-A-T? Oh, yeah. Maybe. Joe Spinell showing up in, in odd places, and I think one of the oddest is Rancho Deluxe, the movie I mentioned earlier, because it's not a New York, it's not an L.A. film, it's not a New York film, it's not gangsters or mobsters or number runners or bookies or anything like that, and he's playing a Native American in that, oddly enough. That's like Charles Bronson when he would play a Native American. You're like, really? <laughs> he kind of looks like one, though, way more than Joe Spinell does, I'll yeah, tell you that. definitely. Yeah, Spinell's amazing. I just love watching him in anything. Yeah, anytime he shows up, whether it's, you know, he's all wrapped up in bandages and winter kills in this one, you know, he just kind of shows up and like, we've got him and his New York accent, and then he got Forrester and his New York accent, but this is very clearly a Los Angeles tale. And like you said, Rain, catching a taxi in LA, a little bit of a challenge and definitely a challenge when your taxi driver just cares about going and trying to collect money from, you know, different deadbeats, but he's not very good at it. And like the whole beginning of this movie, the first act, you get to see just how not good at things Jason is. He's, he's a washed up ex baseball player. He still wears his, his baseball t-shirt and his jerseys and, He's constantly using baseball terminology. And I sometimes wonder if maybe that's where the walking comes from, like four balls type of thing. You see him try to collect money from this guy who goes by the number 516. I guess maybe the these guys are doing the numbers racket. And the, that guy's just like, yeah, no, I'm not going to give you this money. And then he goes home and his nosy neighbor, Mrs. Johnson's like, you get in there, Jason. You see what's going on. You see what's going She is amazing. She's like escaped from like a Russ Meyer film or something. Yeah, I liked how her interaction added like a, a Three's Company vibe to the entire film, right? Like, it's just like <laughs> this comic intersection that, uh, I don't know, it lightens the mood and it certainly humanizes the, you know, our protagonist in, in a way that you would not expect, I think. Well, I guess the other thing that shows what a loser Jason is, is that speaking of Russ Meyer movies, he goes to the bar after he finds out that his wife has been cheating on him. And there's this amazing chesty bartender who picks him up and takes him home and he can't get it up. So you get the scene afterwards. The conversation between them afterwards is so genuine and just really feels so nice. Those two talking and She's not necessarily shaming him about things. He's just like, oh, yeah, you know, things are tough and had a long day kind of thing. But it's not like he's being painted as a loser. You know, he's just he kind of is. And you're like, oh, here's another thing for Jason to overcome. So and eventually he's going to find true love because Nancy Kwan, on the other hand, finds out that her husband is a drug pusher who sells drugs to kids in school. What the hell? According to Brewster, at least. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we don't see it happening in the beginning of the film. That was the, I, I went back to watch to see, like, did I miss something? He's just driving home in the beginning of the film, right? And it's like, is is this, like, we really never find out definitively whether or not this man is as bad as everybody says he is. 
it seems like there's some stuff missing either that wasn't shot that might have been in the script or maybe that was shot and got scrapped. There are a few odd places where things don't stick together in the jigsaw puzzle and that opening is one of them. And then I got really confused and this is kind of jumping ahead, but at the end of the movie, which we can talk about later when the A. Martinez character gets killed and then there's a phone call immediately after and it's like who the fuck is on the phone and uh, huh and then earlier in the film nancy kwan when she goes to the realtor's office it feels like it's the next day after this horrible thing has happened to her husband and son but she mentions that she's been in a sanatorium for a while there's no indication there's been a passage of time you know, like even a fade, fade to black or anything. It's like, okay, well, how, how long were you there? And this all seems to be happening on the same weekend or something. You know, again, constraints. They mention how quickly they shot this and the very low budget. And it may have just not even been in the script. I don't know. But there isn't coverage for that kind of stuff to sort of fill in the gaps for, for the audience. Yeah, they talk about how this the original cinematographer was passed out drunk on set. And that was a poorly lit scene. As as they were saying that, I was like, oh man, yeah, you can really see that. It's just like harsh shadows on the wall. And I'm like, Yeah, while I was watching it, I was just like, oh man, Jordan, what did what are you doing to me? Because this does not look good. And even the the stuff after Spinell and his crew slaughter the husband and first they slaughter the son which is very surprising and then there's this whole like running around trying to find nancy kwan thing later on and you know she's just hiding in the bushes type of thing but all of that stuff i was just like oh this looks pretty rough okay and so once they got into the daylight and or actually once they got to jason's cab i was like oh okay all right this this looks way better and then it stays at that level of quality for the rest of the film but yeah that opening is really rough that opening speaking of paul schrader stuff kind of reminds me a little bit of the rolling thunder not the opening of rolling thunder but that inciting incident that gets him on his quest for revenge where a spouse and a child are murdered i was totally thinking that too yeah I was also thinking a little bit about Assault on Precinct 13 because you have that very multicultural gang. You know, you've got Jesus, you've got McKee, who it seems like he's African-American. You've got, what's the other guy's name? Jimmy, yeah, who's just regular white guy. And then you have Joe Spinell, who obviously is Native American. Yeah, I mean, I really appreciated the fact that this film, for all of its flaws and for, I mean, for... As much, as, as many slurs as you hear over the course of it, like it really seemed to be intentionally going into this multicultural casting in a way that like, I mean, I came up in the 80s, that was not really done, you know, and so it really, really sets it, you know, sets it apart. And, you know, even though I went into this, like, kind of blind and expecting this to be you know, Nancy Kwan's like, I spit on your grave or, you know, something along those lines, which is not what I got quite. But, you know, like it was still just really like kept me in it, you know, like I want to see how they're dealing with with all of these characters and, and just 
dealing with LA's specific LA's multiculturalism and the the tensions that that that, that brought out. Yeah, because when you think about it, Robert Forrester, white guy, but then yeah, Nancy Kwan, other than news reporter calls her an Oriental, which I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, we're still doing that. All right. Definitely were back then still. And then yeah, there's some really like blah 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 slant-eyed yada yada like some bad things that are being said by the right people by the bad guys so it's not like it's robert forrester saying this and then that his buddy is a martinez who i love i just love a martinez i mean he's so great and when he shows up in this and he just he really helps this movie a lot he, he you know he's basically you can tell from the beginning that he's pretty much dead meat just because he's the hero's friend but he really plays a great role in this. I'm always confused as to why he doesn't put a period after the A. I mean, is he saying he's just A Martinez and not the Martinez? You know, trying to keep it kind of humble or something? Because I know it's an abbreviation for his first name. His first name starts with an A, but he never uses a period. And it has always confounded me a little bit. I remember like, like he used to be in everything. And I was just like, you know, like this is... I, I I can't even tell you how many shows that I, oh, and I'd pick him out as, you know, just this character actor. And it had been so long since I had seen anything with him in it that, you know, I was like, had definitely had to go back and look, in, look up and see what he's been up to lately. But yeah, what a, what a phenomenal treat to have him in this film. Well, it's odd because he's still working and still working a lot. Um, I think he was in that Longmire show, which I've heard good things about. I know we'll show up in things like, you know, NCIS, like he makes those rounds. You know, I'm, I, I wouldn't be surprised if he'd been in every single version of law and order, you know, running the gauntlet like that. And he's just, yeah, he's, he's still doing a lot of great work. Apparently he's a musician as well. I wouldn't mind checking out his music and he just has a really good presence and a great face. And he was a ball player too, right? Yeah. Ironically. Bringing it all back home. And he's one of these guys where he has played Native Americans. And when Spinell and his boys are torturing him later on, spoilers, they keep calling him Geronimo. And I'm just like, yeah, yeah. what? Come on, man. Because Jesus, Spinell calls something else, which Oof. I won't repeat. Yeah. But Starts with a bean, I believe. Freebie in the bean. And I'm thinking, it seemed, uh, how would you know? What was the tip off that he's Native American and not Mexican American like uh, Jesus was? I don't know. Another one of those things that's maybe missing from the script. Well, even to think that I was like, oh, well, he maybe had an earring with the feather on it. I was like, no, that's Joe Spinell that's got the earring with the feather on it. <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> Again, <laughs> right. Straight off of uh, Rancho Deluxe, you know. I love how quickly we move because the first time I was watching this, cause I've watched it a few times since. And the first time I was watching it, the first act, I'm just like, okay, here, there's a lot of exposition. All right. We got him working here, doing the numbers, all this kind of stuff. Once Nancy Kwan and Robert Forster meet, that's when the sparks start happening. And it's so quick that she's like, all right, hey, yeah, I want to hire your cab. And he just keeps trying to talk her out of it. And she's just like, no, no, I want to hire you. And we're going to go over here and goes in and pretty much cold blood, cold blooded murders the guy who set up her husband. 
and then goes over and starts to kill all of Joe Spinell's crew. Like all four of them work at one place and she wants to murder them all. And unfortunately things don't go as planned because of a well placed hubcap. Uh, the hubcap foo in this movie was pretty amazing. It happens so quickly. I forget that that's what's wrong with her. You know, later on when he's saying, oh, you got a raspberry or whatever. He goes, I got a cream for that you know, for, for, uh, slide burns or something like that, you know, the more baseball talk. And I'm like, how did she get hurt? I don't remember that. Yeah. I'm like, that must've been a really sharp hubcap to hit her. The thing that really confused me was when he's putting the knife, like he gets beat up pretty good at this encounter. And so she's got her things going on. And then he's also got like big, you know, gash above his eye and he's taking a knife and putting it on there. And I was like, what the hell are you doing? And I was so glad that he talks about that in the commentary. Just briefly, he talks about how when boxers are being hit, like the corner man has a big like ice pack or whatever. So he's like, oh, I, I don't have ice, so I'm using this knife because it's cool and I'm trying to get the swelling down or whatever. I'm like, okay, because I'm like, are you trying to staunch the blood with a knife? <laughs> what is this? But that's also nice foreshadowing too. Which I think he again says in the commentary, that's sort of why, why he used it or retroactively thinking, you know, that's why I, I use that on my, my cut. Yeah. The first time I watched the movie, I was flummoxed by that. I was like, fuck is he doing? I thought he was just, you know, just like an odd character pose or something. Like he brought it out to do something else with it and he just decided to hold it up against his head. And then when I was watching it the other day, I thought, okay, he's, he's trying to stop the flow of blood or he's trying to decrease the swelling. And then of course, with the commentary, he explains it, but it goes along with his character, but also with a lot of the characters that Forrester plays, especially during this time, they're all kind of quirky and goofy. I watched Alligator and Vigilante pretty close together a couple years back. And I, so I get them confused in my head. In one or both, he's constantly talking about his receding hairline. Just like every chance he gets, he makes a comment about his receding hairline. And I was like, is it this one? Is it Walking the Edge? Is it Alligator or is it Vigilantes? One of those movies. And he's always got a quirky little thing that he does. And in this movie, he's got like the, you know, all the baseball talk, the, like you mentioned, the sweats and the t-shirt. I mean, he's, he's. Not never not in sweats in this movie, if I'm not mistaken. Well, he wears jeans too, I guess. And then the thing that I mentioned or alluded to earlier, the three hugs a day, which he brought to the movie. And it's just, it's goofy, but, but it's endearing. And it gives him this quality where he's not just, you know, some badass guy that's going to help her or, you know, even the schlub that gets turned into the badass. He's never the badass in this movie, really. He still has that goofy edge all the way to the end, even when he's pointing the shotgun at Leon and, and gains his respect. Then he just kind of gives him a, a nodding, a, a knowing wink and smile at the end of that exchange. But he's, he's got this quirkiness that I, I think makes particularly in this movie, his character is so endearing. I'm really glad that Forrester had that resurgence before he passed away 
because I also like that he knows that he started really strong in his career and then kind of faded, but he just kept working. And I mean, the guy was never not working. It looks like his filmography is huge and he, yeah, he brought a lot to these roles. I, I love his whole thing with his, his nosy neighbor, where he starts talking about the robberies in the neighborhood and, you know, that's how it starts and all this just, he's, yeah, he brings so much to these roles that could just be nothing. He could have cut out 90% of his own dialogue would have been suicide. I mean, he could still play this role as a silent role, but he just brings so much to this. And yeah, I love those interactions. I love how we get, you know, I'm talking about what a loser he is. And it's kind of the last time that he is a loser is when he goes in to try to get that money from Leon the first time and gets kind of scared out of there. But then he comes back later and it's like, okay, now, you know, he is going to be successful with everything. And I think it's very important that that's, I think like second to the last scene of the film that we get to see that the redemption has become complete because he's talking about Leon through so much of this movie. And he's even got the the one streetwalker. Is it Sharon? I think it is who is just like, Oh, don't go after Leon, blah, 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 blah. And then later on, she turns around as just like, Oh, I'm so sorry. I was so mean to you. I didn't know what was going on. And then she's like, oh, you should go get that money from Leon. He was like, I thought you said not to bother. She said, oh, but no, no, it's okay. I really like her too. And just such a small part, but I thought she brought a lot to it. Actually, it's Delia. And I, I made the same mistake. I was reading through your notes earlier. And when he pulls up to them, the two of them at the beginning, he says the other girl's name first, and then you never hear him say her name. And so I had, I'd written in my notes, Sharon or Sherry or something, you know, is telling him not to bother Leon and blah, 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 writing that down. And then she's in the car later and he keeps calling her Delia. And I'm like, is that my goof or is this a character goof or a writing goof? And then I went and I stopped the, <laughs> it bothered me so much. I stopped the movie and was like, oh no. Okay. The other girl who doesn't talk is Sharon or Cherry or whoever. And she's Delia and she's great. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the thing about this film is that every every character, even when they only have these brief, brief appearances, has a memorable moment. There's not a character that doesn't, which is, I mean, speaks to me as, you know, actors really give, being given the room to grow into these characters, to provide everything they want to. And to have that encouraged by the director and, you know, and, and what a, like, what a, what a good thing that, that is. Sorry, just looking at uh, Frankie Hill, the woman that played Delia, looking at her filmography. And of course, I'm astounded that she was in Kids. So nice. Yes. One of my favorites. Like that guy that shows up in his cab out kind of out of nowhere, but it's his old buddy. What's his name? Nick or something. He just, he basically is there to just dump a whole bunch of exposition right towards the end of the movie and be like, okay, well, this guy's over here and this guy's over here and this guy's over here and just setting up all this stuff. But I mean, he just shows up and gives all this stuff, but then you have all of these other things like, you know, oh yeah, I'll give you some money so you can go, you know, stick it up your nose. He's like, no, no man, I'm clean. And he just like, there's this whole thing about him. You get all this backstory as well as like kind of the flavor of this person, even though it's like, what, a two-minute scene, if that? I believe in the commentary, they 
finally make the connection because they were confused about that phone call too that um, Jason gets after Tony is murdered. And they're like, I think it was Nancy Kwan says, okay, I think he's the guy that calls him to get him to the, to the auto body shop. He knows everything apparently. And I don't know if he stumbled on Tony what, but supposedly Mick or Nick is the guy that called him earlier. And then now he's in his cat or in the car, giving him all the information. I don't know if that's true, but cause I couldn't even hear the conversation either time I watched the movie. I watched the movie with headphones on today and I swear it sounds like Delia on the phone, but yet yeah, it's very confusing that she's just like, Like they don't connect. It's like they're talking over each other and there's no, he doesn't seem to realize what's going on. And so, yeah, it's a very, very confusing thing, but I'll drop the, the clip in here and folks can take a listen for themselves. But yeah, for me, it kind of sounded like Delia, but yeah, it's just a very confusing little moment in the movie. I think that makes more sense actually. And I don't know why I didn't watch the movie with subtitles, but I didn't. <laughs> Cause it probably would have had the character name on there and, and as well as what she was or he was saying. Then I was also confused. Cause I was like, Tony, you mean Geronimo? Well, and then he says Tony too. So that's like, he can't be talking to Tony. Tony was just killed. So what, what's going on? Tony was killed. And also speaking of weird audio, the way that his groans kind of just get repeated a few times while he's being tortured and stuff. It was like, okay. I mean. That torture scene, oh, that is rough, it man. Is. There's a couple rough parts in this movie, and that's definitely one of them. And I, I think it's to the movie's benefit that they're not as, again, the budget constraints reducing the amount of special effects they could use. So they're doing the tricks of, you know, taking another shot, you know, doing some inserts and stuff of the action not the action, but away from the action so that we don't have to create anything elaborate showing this guy get his ear actually cut off. You know, oddly enough, that would get stolen later for another film. A couple of things probably stolen from this movie for that one, but uh, we won't get into all that. Vincent and Theo just has nothing on this movie. Freaking Spinell with all of his great insults when he's up there mourning Jesus at this punk rock bar that we go to a few times. And when he's yelling at his boys, he's just like, it'll take two of you to make one fucking moron. I'm like, I love it. I love it. <laughs> you know, that stuff he brought to that script as well. That's a Spinel line. If I ever heard one, Jesus dies. And apparently McKee doesn't like Bruce star. Well, I love that. The guy's name is Bruce star. B R U S S T A R. I believe it's spelled. Yeah. Bruce star. <laughs> And McKee calls him Bruce, and that really sets him off. <laughs> I like the outfit that he's wearing when he's at the batting cage. Oh, God. The red oh shirt yeah. And the red cap. <laughs> oh, and he's got the gut going on at that point. And then when he oh, starts man, to beat yeah. up McKee, I'm just like, all right, this looks really fakey here, but yeah. I don't care. That's, that's another one of those hallmarks of we don't have a stunt coordinator, we don't have stunt men. 
So you're all going to do your own stunts. And sometimes they work. The leaping into the cab that both Forrester and Quan do, solid. Yeah, that was a great the sequence. Fight stuff, yeah, the fight stuff, maybe not so much. And I think some of that probably could have been cleaned up with editing, maybe to make it a little more convincing. But, um, you know, we're not really focused on that in this movie. It's not a, necessarily about the action or the violence. It's these characters and they've got good characters. Because there's a whole montage. He goes back to that 516 guy and gets the, he collects the money. And then there's a whole montage of him going around town and collecting all this money and throwing it into his sock. Is that money for him to go on the lamb or is that money for him to give to Nancy Kwan's character to get her out of town? That's a good question. I don't know what his motivation is there, really. Because clearly he's not just doing his job anymore, right? He's put a little away for later for, for somebody. But it seems like, you know, I mean, they are going to go off together in the end. Spoiler. They're going off together in the end. And so I'm not convinced they're staying together for the long term necessarily. But it's, it's at least to get them out of where they are. And I mean, clearly he needs to get out of his rut, right? He's stuck. We know this throughout the film. He's he's a stuck person. And, you know, the what Christine Holloway is probably at risk of being stuck as well, right? Like, my family's been murdered and I have to do this thing. And if she gets caught, she goes to jail for all the crimes she's committed in response, right? So she needs to get away. So that's a mutually beneficial kind of kind of project, I think, that he's he's working on there. When she does get stuck also in the film while the two of the goons are calling on the phone and just letting it ring and ring and ring and just driving her crazy and she can't pick up the phone because it'll tip them off that somebody's there, even though they don't know where there is. And then outside is the nosy neighbor and she's just like, what am I going to do? You know, I can't go outside because of Mrs. Johnson and I can't pick up the phone and I've got this ringing phone here. And she just like is stuffing pillows over it. And I'm like, yeah, this, this really sucks for you too. Like you, you are stuck in this house. You're basically on house arrest with this. I, I think if you disconnect the phone, it'll still ring. I think you're right. I, I'm trying to think of back in my childhood, you know, when we actually had those kinds of phones and I'm pretty confident that it just disconnected or most of them had a little switch. You could turn the ringer That's off. That's right. Yeah. It was right there on the side. I can see it like kind of clear plasticky. Yep, yeah, exactly. So anyway, but it's, it's interesting how this switches from her story to his story, like pretty quickly once, once they connect and are back at his apartment and she can't leave, then it's him. And I think the first time I watched it, I was really confused by that. Like thinking, wait a minute, is he now taking on the mantle of revenge or, and is Leon connected to these guys? And is everybody connected? Delia, all these people, because she says to him, you know, everybody knows how to find you right now. They, everybody knows you're in Tony's car, this, this, and this, but I don't think they're as connected as it appears. I think it's just that his story of collection is now attached to her story and getting her out. And I do think that the money is to get her out of there. If together, yes, but definitely to get her out. And that's maybe why he's so much more aggressive about it. But that 
that sequence, I love, I love those montage sequences of like collecting the money. It makes me think of Fast Times at Ridgemont High and Damone trying to collect the money for the abortion, even though he doesn't, he just makes phone calls. I kind of knew this in my head as I was watching and I'm like, he's just walking into those places and walking right back out. And then they mentioned that exact thing in the commentary. And I was like, yeah, it's what, you know, stolen shots. Walk in, there's two stores right next to each other. Just walk into one and then walk into the other. And we've got it. We've got it on film. <laughs> he walks out, he's holding an envelope like he just collected it. That's so great. At knowing what this movie was about, when I looked at the cover of the Blu-ray and the and the poster where it's just him on it, I was like, oh, maybe Nancy Kwan dies like halfway through this movie and then he has fallen in love with her, so now he's going to get revenge. I'm glad it didn't go that way, and I'm glad that those scenes of them together, they feel pretty genuine because they're really angry at each other the first time that they really... Okay, I guess they have a conversation, but like in the cab after she's murdered people, they're going at it. Though his attitude changes at one point when he realizes that she's hurt, and then he's just like kind of feels some, some concern for her. And then there's the argument that they have back at his place. And then there's even the argument later on that ends up becoming the sex scene where they're just going at it again and then like suddenly gets diffused. It's almost like, we are meant for each other kind of thing. And that could, if that wasn't played right, it would be really bad. But I think that they have the right chemistry and that they have the right pacing to that. So that I'm like, okay, this, this works pretty good. And then I know that Nancy Kwan wasn't a big fan of it, but I thought that the intercutting between the lovemaking scene and the A. Martinez torture scene really actually worked very well because it's, you know, oh, you know, Jason, what are you doing? You're, you're making love with this woman while your best friend is being tortured just to keep from telling Joe Spinell where you were at. So I was like, oh, that's kind of a nice amping up of both, both scenes. It was a little rough. I mean, it was definitely a little rough. And I think that one thing, like the, especially the second time I, I, I took a look at it, it starts when he starts talking with the neighbor about like all the crimes that are going on. And suddenly he's talking about rape a whole lot. Like he's just bringing it up a lot. And I'm like, okay, Jason, <laughs> what is haunting you in particular? And that like making that realization really cast another, you know, it made me cast another eye to that inner cut of the sex and the violence. And again, like situating myself back in the eighties and like, the tensions between how sex and violence were depicted and, you know, how clearly the, the, the culture seemed to be moving away from sex about connection and to just about sex about exploitation and then, you know, elevating violence, right? Yeah, because there's discussion of her being like, oh, are you going to have your way with me? And I'm like, oh, that seems kind of out of left field, but I think it's coming from the exact same place that you're talking about, Rain. Did he rape somebody and that ended his baseball career? You know, that is like a thing that is kind of in, in my head or what is his connection there? And I, you know, it's a place where I think a little extra time <laughs> on this might, might help flesh this out. But, you know, I mean, it, it, uh, if this is a character who's really trying to find redemption for whatever he's done in the past, like, 
he still seems to be moving his, you know, moving his way towards it and and you know, and is is the good guy, right? Like we'd ever really see him make a move that I think would be construed as rapey, <laughs> for lack of a better word, right? So, you know, up to the point where like I think that's what made it so jarring. You know, having watched it already one time and really realized like, oh, so this is a character who's just on like a redemption arc. But then for him to like, in just a short amount of time, bring up rape like four or five times in different sections of the film. Yeah, it just made me really want to know more about what that character's relationship was to that kind of sexual violence. That's a really good question as far as how did he even get into the position he's in at the beginning of the film? Did he start doing a Pete Rose and betting on baseball or did he blow out uh, his other elbow or something? I don't know what it is because his, his elbow seems to be good, especially when he's throwing pool balls over at Leon. That scene is a very interesting scene because... It's great that Jerry Jones shows up. I love Jerry Jones. You know, of course, you know, the, being in Dolomite and Disco Godfather and The Long Goodbye. I mean, you can't get better than that for me. He's got that great voice, but they call him Gabby because he doesn't talk very much. And I'm like, I kind of want to hear him talk more or maybe even if he switched roles with the guys that plays Leon, because Leon is definitely not an actor and he's definitely being ADR'd the very first time we hear from him. And then every other time he speaks, okay, I can see why they ADR'd you because it's really kind of rough. It's not terrible. It's not the worst acting in the world, but it's pretty rough. I like that guy's voice. I didn't even notice that. How funny. Yeah. That very first time you see him from the back and he's talking Ah. to Jason and I'm just like, his voice doesn't sound like this in a few minutes. Okay, yeah, yeah. And I think there's a couple other spots in the gas station, maybe, that was ADR'd. It had just had a different kind of tone to it. The rape stuff, yeah, I just thought he was trying to make sure that Mrs. Johnson would stay in her apartment. That's I didn't what I was even, thinking, yeah. I'm surface level. I don't, I, I don't tend to dig too deep and stuff. But now I've got all these questions. What did he do? What is, is he a good guy? Come on, Jason, spill the beans. Why aren't you playing baseball anymore? Now I need to know. A lot of ball jokes. He gets totally losing his balls a lot. And I think there could have been a very good line at the end of the movie. They missed their opportunity. But um, Leon should have said, you've got some balls on you, man. Ooh, but- <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Missed it. But I think this hauntedness is like what, again, I went into this the first time expecting to just see like a mid-80s exploitation grindhouse kind of film. And then upon second viewing, having realized through a commentary that this was intended as a John Garfield film. And suddenly, like the movie just really made sense. Like, oh, this is a this is a noir L.A. is in it, right? L.A. is doing L.A.'s job as a noir film. Here's a man who is haunted the way a John Garfield, you know, character or any of the other, you know, classic noir guys were. But, like, you're not able to see this as a noir because the lighting is not that, right? It's not in black and white. And But at the same time, I'm like, okay, so this is something that's making me really feel so much more endeared to this film. And, of course, L.A. being... LA, you know, definitely this movie made me want to go back and watch out 
Los Angeles plays itself again, you know. Just the way that that LA vibe makes noirs function in a way that I don't think really other other cities tend to tend to do. It's it's a lonely, crowded place. That's what I always think of LA as. Like, and the opening of the husband driving on the freeway, and I mean, there's a lot of scenes in cars, which I know was hard for them to do on such a low budget. But just seeing that early '80s LA, those streets even when they're driving on sunset and you see all the, I've driven on that stretch of sunset. I don't know how many times over the years and you know exactly where those billboards are going to be. And, you know, in a couple of months they would have been totally different billboards and uh, seeing the old tower records on sunset and all that stuff. It's yeah. Which is right across from Mr. Jonathan's salon. So I was very happy whenever I see that. I love the, uh, the, the Tempest billboard, the Cassavetes, Paul Mazursky Tempest. I was like, ah, I got to see this movie. I got to stop this movie so I can watch that other movie. It just reminded me of how much I love that film. I was glad Star to see Star Trek II. Officer and Gentleman. Yeah. Yep. yeah. I mean, so you know it was definitely shot in 82, but yeah, the release date, I guess, is in question. But And like I mentioned at the beginning, I'd never even heard of this movie before. And if it was out on video on the 80s, possibly under a different title. I don't have no recollection of that. Unfortunately, I do have to say that Jackie Brown was my introduction really to Robert Forrester and hearing all that, you know, reviving his career. And I'm like, who is this guy reviving? What career? I don't even know who this guy is. I don't think I had seen medium cool even at that point and definitely hadn't seen reflections in a golden eye, but you know, even the eighties staples like alligator and maybe vigilante I had, I just didn't know who he was until then and didn't really, I don't think had much of an opportunity to go back and see a lot of those movies. Even at that time, whenever Jackie Brown came out, I doubt a lot of this stuff was on video. So it's only been like maybe over the last 10 or 13 years where he keeps popping up and these, he's, he's the lead role, but you know, the movies are like way down on the, the budget totem pole or, I mean, alligator is a great movie. Vigilante is great too, but they're not, they weren't, they may not have even played my town when they first opened, who knows? But, um, he's just such an interesting actor and, uh, unfortunate that he went through that big dry spell, I guess. I mean, I would have liked to have seen Michael on back for twin peaks, the return, but I thought that he played a great Harry S. Truman. Actually, he was Harry's brother. I thought that he did a really good job in that. I like the connection because he's uh, he's also in Mulholland Drive as one of the detectives there. Some great, super dry humor. I'll be honest, I'm I'm kind of right there with you, Mark, as far as his career, because I mostly just knew him from being in the black hole. And I know that he would show up in other things like Tales from the Dark Side or Murder, She Wrote, just like little pieces here and there. But I wasn't like big fan. And then when it was him and um, Pam Greer across the screen from each other, and it's just this kind of, uh, not, a, not a septuagenarian, more like a sextagenarian romance between these two. I was like, oh, this is really nice. Like these two people kind of un unhinged in the world, you know, un, unattached and kind of aimless finding each other. I thought that was really good. And just that, that movie, other than the end, which I 
can't stand the third act of that film because of all the weird time flipping things that it does, which I just didn't need it. But I like that it really captures Elmore Leonard very well. And I don't think Elmore Leonard did all that time stuff in his book. I think it's much more straightforward. Yeah. And he's got a little bit of that quirkiness even in that role with the tape, you know, going and getting the tape and going to watch movies by himself. And he's a, he seems like he's kind of a goofy guy in a lot of these movies where you're expecting a, a tough guy. What does he say in this? I'm not the hero, but I'm also not the... So where he says, I'm not a hero, but I'm also not a murderer. I guess we could all say that. I right. Would, that I would, <laughs> at least so far. Second, The second so part, at least. Yeah. <laughs> when the movie starts the real revenge stuff after Tony is dead, we're in high gear with all of this murder and mayhem that happens. And I love it. I really love it. Because it's only, quote unquote, only, only three people that he has to murder at the end of this because Jesus is dead. So you got the three guys, including Joe Spinell. And like I said, you've got Nick or Mick or whoever comes into the cab and just tells him where all these people are. And he's like, okay, great. So it's like, all right, I'm going to go over here and, and, you know, I'm going to rescue this old herbalist in Chinatown and I'm going to, you know, get that all taken care of. I love that the actor's name is Peter Pan. That's so great. <laughs> love that scene. I also love that, you know, I was talking before about how they don't really, they don't really make a big deal about Nancy Kwan being Asian, but that they do have like, oh, I can go hide out in Chinatown. And again, to your point, Rain, it's Los Angeles. We've got Chinatown. She could hide out in there and just, it's kind of like the Casbah, you know, uh, the, in, is it Pepe Limoco or I can't remember which one it is, but it's just like, okay, once you get in there, like you're safe. And she goes in and, you know, the guy's trying to find her and everything and almost cuts that old man's hand off. That was extreme but man when he comes in when robert forrester comes in and attacks that dude and it fucking slits his throat in that one quick motion i was like oh wow i did not expect that oh i thought he did the old break your neck scene but missed the knife in that part. oh maybe it was just a night uh, i'll have to watch break, it again but i thought it was a knife cut on that one i mean he he was wrapping up his knife in the um sandpaper right so that makes sense i didn't even think about that yeah because then he uses his knife too on mckee by stabbing him in the back at the the punk rock club that scene was brutal now that was brutal he keeps pulling up on it and like talk you know am i doing it right and i'm like oh man that was another one of those missing pieces scenes though where they're talking on the commentary where he's supposed to be throwing mckee out the window and I'm like, that's what he's doing? Wow. Yeah. Out of the non-existent window that wasn't there apparently. And I'm like, oh, I thought he was just putting him in the stall. Yeah. I didn't catch that at all. <laughs> Me either. <laughs> wow. That was rough. The lie that you used at the opening of this about, shut the fuck up. I'm whacking off. There we go. The way he says it too, it just makes it. Oh, so good. And then when he goes out and he talks to the bartender, just. Take this fucking music of yours and shove it up your kazoo. <laughs> right. Kazoo. That's that's the goofy stuff I'm talking about. Like, who says kazoo? And then the whole thing, how he, like, takes the dead bodies to where Brewstar is and <laughs> has them around. 
to to like hang down and scare yeah. Joe Spinell. It's the Halloween. Uh-huh. It's the Halloween gag. It totally is. It's Halloween and it's mixed with Black Belt Jones. It's like the the scene in Black Belt Jones when he goes into the dojo and is trying to find Jones and they've got all the lights off and then they'll turn the lights on and punch a guy and then turn the lights off again. <laughs> A little anticlimactic when he takes out Joe Spinell. I could I could have used some pizzazz there, but you know what are you gonna do? And I was expe- I was expecting them to turn the drill on him in payment for what they did to Tony. I mean, the uh, drill does make an appearance, so you know it does make an appearance, and it's kind of fitting. I think it's maybe a little more towards his character to just sort of drop it, you know, and and say that line instead of actually using it on him. Because he's not an animal like they are, so. No, he's definitely more elevated. And it took me a while to figure out what they were saying towards the end. Both times, even after I knew what he meant, it still takes me back where he comes in. Leon is playing pool. We get to see the front of the club that they're playing the pool in and get to see the people waltzing this like upscale place. And he goes in back. front of the sheetrock, <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> Go back in there and there's, uh, there's Gabby and Leon playing pool. But he says, Forrester's character says, you've been playing against Gabby for nine hours. And I'm just like playing again, playing Gabby for nine hours. What does that mean? And then finally I'm like, oh, Gabby's the Jerry Jones character. Okay. So I'm like, oh, so all of this stuff has been happening. Yeah. Like not necessarily in real time, but like it's been nine hours since that earlier scene that we saw. It's like, oh. And they've been playing pool the whole time. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I've been out murdering people and you've been here playing pool. So I think you owe me that $2,500 out of the 14 grand that you're winning off of Gabby right now. Yeah. That uh, club was one of the. Like okay, yeah, this is a low budget movie. And then in the commentary, when they mentioned that that restaurant, you know, they show the exterior of the El Conquistador, and then the interior of somebody's house, and I'm like, yeah, it didn't look quite right <laughs> <No>. to me. <laughs> I just thought, you know, I mean, I don't know, it's an old restaurant. Sometimes old restaurants look kind of dumpy on the interior. Sure, sure. <laughs> That's somebody's house. And then I love how that he doesn't necessarily know if she's going to show up at the end. It's this kind of will they or won't they moment. And when she shows up, you're just like, oh, this is so sweet. It's like, I've just been watching this really low budget revenge movie, but this is such a sweet moment that they're together. And I'm being 100% sincere when I say that because it's just a nice moment. Yeah. No, it's good. It's a nice break from the nihilism. You know, if this had been made four years earlier, it still has a little bit of 70s tinge around it. You know, even shot in 82, it's it's one of those early 80 films that still has that. It's been rubbed off on, you know, by all the 70s nihilistic films, but it doesn't have that ending either where she ends up, they found her before he got to them and she's actually dead or she doesn't show up or whatever it could be. When they do that great fake out too, when it's Mrs. Johnson on the bed and you think that it's her, I was like, no, don't kill Nancy Kwan. Even though I thought you were going to, please don't kill her. Yeah. But poor Mrs. Johnson, she never hurt anybody. That is kind of a bummer though. (laughs) Her and her amazing bad wig that she's wearing. (laughs) 
Oh, she's great. My, my grandmother wore almost that exact same wig. So every time when I watch this movie, I kind of chuckle. It's, that used to be such the thing that women would wear wigs. My grandmother had a ton of wigs. I think my mom had wigs. It's like, okay, when, when did that start to go away? I wonder. Oh gosh. Sixties, <laughs> seventies, right? yeah. definitely seventies. Yeah. yeah. She had a really long career and I've seen her in a bunch of stuff. Of course, I think most people would recognize her as one of the farmer's wife that owns, what is it? Twin Pines Farm, where Marty McFly goes back in oh, time. Oh, right. Yeah, she's she's the farmer's wife in that one. I have to mention one other great line that Leon pulls off. I think it's the first visit um, that Jason makes to to hit the pool room, the club. He says, "But you come in here and fucked up like a white person," and that is like <laughs> that is so good. <laughs> that is so good. Like you do. I mean, we've yeah, all been I mean, there. <laughs> I, uh, I will definitely own that. <laughs> I have done that. I have walked in somewhere and fucked up like a white person numerous times. I pretty much do it every day. I think anytime I leave the house, I do. So do y'all have any final thoughts about uh, walking the edge? I really miss blue sugar-free Dr. Pepper. Clearly, there was like a. Yeah, I was wondering what. There's like a Dr. Pepper placement. That that some somebody loved Dr. Pepper, or they got a little cash. But uh, yeah, I was like, oh my god, look at that! I had to freeze the frame. Take a look at that 1980s blue sugar-free Dr. Pepper can. That really brought me back in a big way. All right, you are making me look up something that I wanted to look up. Yep, there it is. Okay, 1981 film Student Bodies. That movie was definitely sponsored by Dr. Pepper. It is everywhere. So I'm wondering if it was like the early 80s, like did Dr. Pepper just have all this money it could sink into product placement? Was this like the (laughs) David McNaughton time? Like this is it was oh as soon as they said right dr around Pepper, there i was like right around there yeah if so yeah. it was money well spent because it worked on me yeah i was trying to figure out i'm like was that one of their other flavors or is that just a sugar-free yeah it was can? just their diet the weirdest, diet dr pepper that just seems like a weird color for a can of soda it doesn't i don't know light blue just doesn't make sense to me for some whatever reason i don't know why oh don't forget tab was that not quite pink, but still kind of pink. It was like, yeah, it was a strange color. I mean, I guess when we all had like avocado colored refrigerators. And brown everything else. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's that great meme of like people think that the 80s look like mm-hmm. versus what it actually looked like. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. The neon versus the drab. Puke. Yes. <laughs> Puke green, baby poop. Brown. That was the real world. All that good stuff. I will say I like that the movie ended kind of full circle with them leaving. They're not on the freeway, but they're driving off one of the main LA streets at night. And we open with the shots of the freeway at night as well. And I think he says, one of them says, I like jazz. And that's the last line. And it's great. Yeah. Cause they were arguing about the song on the radio earlier. She says she likes jazz, and then she's like, yes. turn it off. Right. Yes. <laughs> I can be mind one. Right. Right. And then suddenly he flips the channels, and it's like Free Bird or a guitar solo from Hotel California, and it's just like, the song's almost over. Yeah. No, it's not. <laughs> yeah, no, it's not. 
All right, let's go ahead and take a break and play a preview for next week's show right after these brief messages. That's right. We'll be back next week with a look at Arcana as our month of requests continue. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Rain and Mark. So, Mark, what's the latest with you, sir? Well, I'm slowly getting back into doing regular episodes over Wake Up Heavy and kind of stumbled on a cannibal theme for some reason. So I talked briefly about Motel Hell, which people should definitely go check out your episode on it because it's much more in-depth and knowledgeable than my little thing. And Chris and I are been trying to record an episode on Bob Balaban's parents. Oh, cool. That's a and great then one. I think I'm going to throw in a little episode on Durfan as well. So I don't know what it is about cannibal stuff right now, but I guess I'm getting ready for the holidays. Maybe my other show Cambridge and with Sean is released the first Tuesday of every month. And that is me and an old buddy of mine talking about weird stuff that we were obsessed with when we were kids. That's more regular than the other, than Wake Up Heavy, but um, less frequent, I guess. I love how your podcasts kind of explore just stuff that you like. I really appreciate that. That's, yeah, that's kind of, otherwise, it's like, why am I doing this? (laughs) That's sort of why I've disappeared a little bit too, is I'm not going to keep talking about movies that I didn't like watching. What's the point? And Rain, what's happening in your world? Well, I'm coming to the end of my part, pretty long project where we've been going out to collect oral histories from trans people in Baltimore. And that's going to turn into a podcast sometime in the coming year as well. So yeah, I've been going out and interviewing a lot of people from uh, various time 
time frames and their engagement with the trans community in Baltimore. So it's been a really fascinating, deep history. That sounds great. When did you say that might be out? Uh, sometime in 2024. We're still going to be in production, but I'm, I'm finishing my interviews and there's a few other people that are part of this project as well. So yeah, we'll, uh, we'll have to let you know when it's coming out. You can always check me on my my website, which is just my name, rain.com, R-A-H-N-E.com. And uh, I'm sure that I will have news there when it comes around. And Mark, you're still over at wakeupheavy.com? Yes. And the shows are on weirdandwaymedia.com, which I forgot to mention. And I'm on most social media, just at wakeupheavy, all one word. Well, thank you so much, folks, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. If you want to hear more of me shooting off my mouth as well, as all of Mark's stuff, come on over to weirdingwaymedia.com. All the shows that I work on are over there. Thanks especially to our Patreon community. If you want to join the community, visit patreon.com slash projectionbooth. Every donation we get helps the projection booth take over the world. See me in the bridge I've made for you